Well, please keep Revelation chapter 8 open as we come to study it together this evening. We're considering tonight precious prayers and partial judgments. Precious prayers and partial judgments. The book of Revelation is an apocalyptic book. It's a strange word, apocalyptic. It simply means that it's a book full of pictures and symbols, as we considered this morning. But it also means that it's a book that does not necessarily describe for us a series of chronological events that happen one after another in time and space. Instead, Revelation, for large portions of the book, tells us about the same things several times over, but describes them in different ways. In chapter 6 and 7, Revelation describes for us a vision of seven seals being broken on a scroll. And we thought this morning and and more in depth several months ago what those seals mean and what they represent. And tonight we're going to begin looking at a cycle of seven trumpets. But the seven trumpets are describing many of the same things or at least they are teaching us many of the same lessons as the seven seals. Just from a slightly different perspective. It's a bit like if you were to read a newspaper the day after a huge national or even international event. Let's imagine, for example, uh, the coronation of our next monarch. If we live to see it, that will be an event that dominates the news for weeks, if not months. Are the newspapers going to have just one short report about the coronation? No, they're going to have maybe five, six. Maybe the the Daily Telegraph might have 10 or 12 articles about the coronation describing it all in a, in a souvenir bumper edition. Here's what it was like for the people who were, who were there in Westminster Abbey. Here's, what it's, here's the preparation involved for the Archbishop of Canterbury or whoever else is involved. Here's an interview with someone who was at the last coronation and we get their opinion about how it compares to this coronation. See, you're reading about the same event. The same basic facts remain. But from all these different perspectives, adding in details and giving you a fuller picture and understanding of the significance of it. And for large portions of Revelation, that's what the book is doing for us. It tells us about Jesus and what he is doing in our world now and what he will do in the future. And to emphasize the significance of that, of Jesus and his work, we have it described for us several different times in several different ways. And so the vision of the seven seals finishes at the beginning of chapter 8. And as we reminded ourselves this morning, the seven seals showed us the world between the first and second comings of Jesus. And it shows us, (coughs) the seals showed us the world largely from the perspective of the saints, the chosen people of God, as they endure the evils that are rampaging across our world. And we, that, we saw that in particular in the four horsemen described in chapter 6. And we saw how the saints in heaven, uh, in, in, in the face of all of that, pray for God's judgment to be delivered on the world. Well, the seven trumpets show us largely the same time frame. The time between the first and second comings of Jesus. The time leading up to his return. But the trumpets show us things from heaven's perspective. And so let's notice firstly this evening the end of the seven seals. And with the end of the seven seals we notice in particular 
how God handles our prayers. <clears throat> how God handles our prayers. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And that silence most likely is a sign of God's judgment or his imminent judgment. It's often the case in the Old Testament uh, that there is silence surrounding the, the presence of God or the judgment of God. Uh, and likely what we have here is a reverent awe in heaven because of what God is about to do. And then verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. <coughs> there were two altars in Old Testament temple worship which the priests used every single day. One was the altar for animal sacrifice and the other was the altar of incense where a sweet-smelling aroma would waft up from the temple and the smoke would be seen by the people outside as it went up into the heavens. And John here sees the incense altar and he says that it's symbolic, it's a picture for us of the prayers of God's people wafting up to heaven as it were. As human beings, we're attracted to beautiful smells and aromas, aren't we? Maybe some of you were able to, to smell uh, the barbecue as, as, as things began to come together last night as we eagerly awaited our dinner and, and you're thinking, that's a good smell. There's something good coming here. Uh, perhaps we have our, our favourite perfumes or our favourite aftershaves. Uh, particular smells bring a smile to our face. And that's what this picture is telling us here, friends, that God delights to hear the prayers of his people. The prayers of God's people are precious to him. They are pleasure giving to him. And notice that in particular it's the prayers of God's people that ascend to him and give him pleasure. Verse 3. It's the prayers of the saints that rose before God. The saints being of course another description for Christians in general. Non-Christians, unbelievers can pray to God. But there is nothing in scripture to suggest that God is obligated to listen to or answer their prayers. Doesn't mean that he won't. Doesn't mean that he can't. But there is not that relationship between God and unbelievers when they pray that there is between God and his people when we pray. The reason for that is because the prayers of the believer are covered and they are made perfect and they come through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good not only to end your prayers in the name of Jesus, but even to begin your prayers in the name of Jesus. He is our great high priest. He is the one who takes our prayers as imperfect and half-baked as they might be on our part at times. And he perfects them and he presents them before our Heavenly Father. And in doing so, of course, he, he makes our prayers beautiful and sweet and perfect to God our Father. Joel Beke gave this illustration. He says, imagine you see a little girl picking a bundle of flowers from the garden. And she says, I want to go and give these flowers to my mummy. 
You might say, that's, that's a lovely thing to do, but let me help you first because there's some weeds in amongst those flowers. There's, there's some dirt, there's some thorns, and you'll have a more beautiful bouquet of flowers to give if you let me help you. Well, that's what Jesus does with the prayers of the saints. When we barely know what to pray, when we pray for the wrong things, unknowingly, unwittingly, when we pray for the right things, but we're tired and we hardly can find the words, even the best prayers that we pray, friends, they're all made better because, as, this, as the text says here, much incense is added to them. The person and work, the perfect hands of Jesus Christ present our prayers to God the Father. Those nail-scarred hands present our prayers to him. And so how precious those prayers are to God. Let that encourage you to pray this week, Christian. To pray gladly, to pray eagerly, to pray frequently. Not worrying so much about whether you got all the words right or how long you were able to give it. But thankful that our prayers are precious to God and gladly received by him in the name of Jesus. This passage also tells us that our prayers are powerful. Turn back for a moment to Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. This is what happened when the fifth seal was opened. Chapter 6 verse 9. John saw martyred saints were told praying to God. And then chapter 6 verse 10. Verse 10 says they cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Remember, these are perfected saints, friends. These are the souls of believers made perfect and in glory. Martyred Christians who have gone to heaven. And yet they're still praying. They're praying for God to bring justice to the world that is persecuting their brothers and sisters that hated them and killed them and is continuing to hate and kill and to rebel against God. And they say, how long, God, before your judgment comes? And notice chapter 6 verse 11 says that the praying saints are told to wait a little longer. Judgment is coming but not just yet. But then we get to chapter 8 and the waiting is over. And notice this, this is crucial. In response to his people's prayers friends, God is at work in the world. In response to his people's prayers, God is at work in the world. Look at chapter 8 verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from where? From the altar. The altar of incense where the prayers are going up. And threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake. That's the language of judgment. That is God in his holy presence and holy character turning his gaze, fixing his sights upon the world, upon the earth. And the sinful inhabitants of it. And the rest of chapter 8 will describe the judgments that he brings upon the earth. But just look at verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So don't miss this friends. God is at work in the world even sometimes bringing judgment upon the world. As a result of his people's prayers. 
The prayers are offered, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. The prayers are filled with much incense, chapter 8, verse 3. The prayers rise to God, verse 4. And then in verse 5, they are turned around on the earth in the form of judgments. If you're a Christian here today, your prayers are powerful. And they will be used by God for the bringing about of his good purposes. I wonder, do we realize that what God is doing in this world, friends, he is doing in response to his people's prayers? And what more might God do were his people moved to pray more? Prayer is not a waste of time. Prayer is not a letter to the Prime Minister that will get an automated response from a secretary. Prayer is not badgering a grumpy tyrant who doesn't want the help. Prayer is the cry of children to the Father. It is sweet-smelling incense that inclines our God to smile upon us. And our prayers will be answered sooner or later. That's the lesson to take from this part of the seven seals. At first God said to the murdered saints, Later. Eventually he said yes. Now this doesn't mean that we are to begin praying only and always for specific judgments or hardship on people. We live in the era of grace. We want people to come to repentance. We want people to be saved. There's plenty of other parts of scripture that show us the prayers that we should pray for those around us to be saved and to repent. But friends, in those instances where we see absolute injustice and persecution and stubborn wickedness and rebellion running amok in our world. Those instances when we, like the martyrs in heaven, simply are left crying out, How long? Revelation tells us that God is answering the prayers of his saints. He is bringing partial, limited judgment on our world, even here and now. When we pray, Your kingdom come. It may be that that kingdom comes in salvation for some. It may be that that kingdom comes in judgment upon others. We leave those things in God's hands. Do not avenge yourselves, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 9. Instead, he says, leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Our prayers are powerful. We can pray to God to act as he sees fit in this world. We can pray for his kingdom to come. And the results of those prayers are in his hands. I can apply this more personally to children of God this evening, followers of Christ. Your prayers are precious. Your prayers for patience as a parent. Your prayers for courage as a gospel witness. Your prayers for encouragement in old age or illness. Your prayers for the church, local and global. They are precious to God like sweet smelling incense and they are powerful. The half hour before our morning or our evening services. The time that we'll spend in Wednesday evenings in the months ahead. The times you pray with your family or your spouse or a a friend or a loved one. Prayer times your elders will hold together. What happens in those moments, friends, is far more significant, far more significant than what will happen in 10 Downing Downing Street tomorrow when the latest resident struts in and 
believes that they can tackle the mountain of crises that are waiting for them? Do we believe in the preciousness and the power of our prayers? If we do, let's commit ourselves afresh to praying to our Heavenly Father personally and corporately here in this church family this autumn and winter. The end of the seven seals, how God handles our prayers. But secondly, this evening, uh, the beginning of the seven trumpets. And we see in the beginning of the seven trumpets how God judges our world. How God judges our world. And so we move in to the cycle of seven trumpets. And there are some notable similarities between the seven seals and the seven trumpets. In particular, we notice that the first four trumpets belong together as a group. The same way the first four seals did. First four seals again unleashed the four riders on the horses, bringing hardship and devastation on the earth. And the first four trumpets bring something very similar. The main difference again is that this time it's as though we're looking down from heaven upon these things. Uh, and, you, and that's emphasized to us there in chapter 8 verse 2 that the seven angels with the trumpets stand before God in heaven. Uh, and when the first four angels blow their trumpets, friends, judgment is poured out from heaven down onto the earth. The trumpet, you see, is, is not really a, a musical instrument for our enjoyment or entertainment in the Bible. It is today, of course, but it wasn't in ancient times. In the ancient, ancient world, the trumpet was used to warn people of danger. You remember what happened to Jericho, for example, Joshua chapter 6. After marching around the city each day for six days, on the seventh day, the Israelites marched around the city seven times. And then before they began marching, before they began marching, sorry, seven priests blew seven trumpets. Time up. God at the gates. Judgment at hand. And likewise here, the first four trumpets symbolize judgment near and even already here. And the descriptions of these first four trumpets and, their, and the judgments they bring, they, they bear striking similarity to some of the plagues that we read about. Maybe you noticed this in the readings. But if you look at chapter 8, verse 7, for example, uh, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth. Compare that to what we read in Exodus nine twenty two. God says to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be heal in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field. See, there's the final judgment still to come in the future. And there are these partial, present, limited judgments falling on our world here and now. Just as God brought judgment on Pharaoh before the exodus. And of course, these judgments, these first four trumpets, again, it's symbolic language. Uh, It doesn't mean we're to sit tight and wait for hail and fire to fall down on certain parts of the world tomorrow. But several things these first four trumpets teach us about the judgment of our our God in the world right now. Uh, First of all, they teach us that God is disrupting the world's routines. God is disrupting the world's routines. Verse 7, the first trumpet It impacts a third of the land. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All green grass was burned up. Likewise, we're told that the second trumpet results in a third of living creatures in the sea dying. 
And also it says a third of the ships destroyed. Ships, of course, representing human trading, particularly in the ancient world. Of course, many ships uh, carrying out our, our trading needs today as well. And this is a picture of the world economy dramatically stalled and disrupted and perhaps on the brink of ruin. Third trumpet poisons the water with wormwood, makes the water undrinkable and bitter. The fourth trumpet results in darkness. And so the sun, which gives light and heat and and so life to the earth, is hindered from doing so. Hail, blood, water ruined, fire, darkness, judgment. God is disrupting the world's routines. God is targeting the necessities, the land, the grass, the light, the oceans, the the water, the necessities of life that people rely upon and and with them, uh, the idols that we worship. All of those things, those things that we rely upon, they they also are, uh, they tend to be the basic elements of, of those things which become idols for us. The things that we build from the raw materials of the ground, the trading and the business and the busyness of life on this earth, those things can so easily become idolatrous. Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth or being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness of mankind. It's being poured out, Paul says, because we worship and serve created things from the land and the seas and the sky instead of our creator God. And God's judgments here, just as in the days of Exodus, they target those created things that were too reliant upon and have become idols for the world. Now, if you're at all switched on or paying attention to the headlines of the last few months, you might be thinking at this point, the four trumpets are blasting pretty loudly in 2022. Grain fields in Ukraine being burnt up by the Russians. Floods in Pakistan, droughts and fires in England. Water supplies poisoned or dirty in Africa. Nothing but complete doom and gloom in the economic forecasts for the months ahead. Quite possibly this winter there will be some homes in greater darkness than usual. As people try to save some money on their electricity. And you think surely all of this is fulfillment of Revelation chapter 8. And in many ways it is. It is. But we also have to keep in mind friends that droughts and fires and famines and disasters and economic upheaval have been part of life on this earth for thousands of years. And I don't say that to minimize at all the the seriousness of of this text or the seriousness of what people are, are living through or are about to live through here and now today. But it's simply to say that these are marks of a world that continues to refuse the kingship of Christ. As we've said before, the last days that we talk about sometimes, they cover the whole time between the first and second comings of Christ. And one of the things that God is doing in these last days is he is disrupting the world's routines. He is shaking people. He is shocking people. He wants them to realize that what we are tempted to rely upon and put our trust in and even worship is ultimately going to fail us. One writer says, the first four trumpets together prove 
that those who live only for this world have chosen foolishly. Earthly things turn on us and we dare not depend upon them. Many people in our world this evening are living foolishly. Are living only for the things of this world. And right now the things of this world are turning upon them. Cost of living. War in Europe. It could go on and on. But I wonder Christians do you and I fall into this mistake as well? Do we depend upon or fill our lives with these earthly things. That we think it's all that life is. As we rush from one thing to the next. From Work to holidays to entertainment to leisure. Are some of these things the reasons that we're not praying and believing in the preciousness and power of prayer as we should because we're too taken up with these other things? And all the while the psalmist says there's no thought of God before our eyes. It's been a frustrating summer listening to the talking heads on TV or social media. Correctly identifying the problems, showing us the footage of the problems, the energy crisis, disaster because of weather. And yet the only solutions offered are man-centered solutions. Climate change, however you want to define it, however much you want to believe in it. It's down to us to fix it. We need to change what we eat, we need to change how we farm, we need to change how much we drive. Economic crisis, the government should figure out how to fix it. No mention is given of repentance. Humbling ourselves before the creator of these things and recognizing his total sovereignty over them. And so God disrupts the world's routines. The four trumpets blare all around us, friends, warning people not to trust in created things, but to turn to their creator God. We ought to pray that eventually people will pay attention. So with these seven trumpets, God is... Uh, disrupting the world's routines, but also God is limiting the damage. God is graciously limiting the damage. As dreadful as these judgments are, notice that uh, just as with the four riders, they're actually not as bad as they could be. They're limited. Thirteen times in Revelation chapter 8, the word uh, third appears, a third of the earth, a third of the seas, verse 9. A third of living creatures died. Verse 12, a third of the sun was struck. The damage done, friends, by the blasts of the trumpet is dreadful, but it is limited. It's a third, not a whole. The riders and the horses got a fourth of the earth. The trumpets get a third of the earth. And so things are ramping up as we read through Revelation. But still, the judgments are limited. And this again is a sign of God's mercy. Things are bad, but they are not as bad as they could be because of the sheer mercy of God. And when there isn't as much money in our bank accounts or our favourite foods are getting more expensive or people worry about how the economy will impact them this winter, what should we do? We should thank God for his mercy. We should plead to God for his grace. We should repent to God for our sins. Recognizing that though he has chastened us, he hasn't yet destroyed us. God is disrupting the world's routines. He is limiting the damage. Also with these first four trumpets, God is patiently warning of worse to come. Patiently warning 
of worse to come. We're only looking at the first four trumpets this evening. There are, of course, three more still to come, which we'll consider God willing in a couple of weeks' time in chapter 9. And just as with the seven seals, the judgments of the last three trumpets are going to be even worse than the first four. We have a warning about that here at the end of chapter 8. If you look at it, verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Often in the Old Testament, the eagle or the vulture is a picture of destruction. Deuteronomy 28, 49, for example, as God describes the punishments that he will bring on Israel if they breach his covenant. Says Deuteronomy 28, 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. And here in Revelation 8, 13, the eagle is flying directly overhead. In other words, it's closing in on its prey. It's about to strike. The message is that worse than what we've already read and heard about is still to come. That is the solemn, serious position our world is in tonight. Think of drought or council strikes or the war in Ukraine or the cost of living or the mental health crisis is bad. Worse is coming when the Lamb of Heaven returns in judgment. Revelation has already described that judgment day back in chapter 6, verses 15 to 17, as all unbelievers from kings and rulers to slaves and paupers try to hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb, and yet none of them able to withstand his fiery presence. And as we go further into the book and revisit that judgment day, we'll get more detail about it. And it's interesting, if you cast your eye over chapter 6, verses 15 to 17, it's all kinds of people, rich and poor. Interesting that generals are mentioned, those who would wage war, those who would believe their military campaigns will be the glory of their nation or will secure their names in the history books, those who are the influencers and the culture shakers of our world, doesn't matter who you are, You will not be able to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. And the message is, repent now before it is too late. Before you are consigned to the eternal conscious torment for not confessing King Jesus as your Saviour. And for those of us who are Christians in these days of people worried and speculating and wondering about their money and their health and their plans. Friends, please just don't give the small talk replies. Ah well, what can you do? It'll all work itself out. Somebody will come up with something. No, we need to be urging people, boldly telling them, far worse than a recession or a cold winter is coming. Jesus Christ, with all the fury and fire of God Almighty, is coming in full and final judgment. 
and tell them too about the comfort and the joy and the peace that we can have if we are trusting in him, if we follow him, if we love him and we know what he has in store for us. But we need to keep this perspective in mind. We Christians at times, we can be guilty of just looking and sounding like everyone else, filling our minds and our speech and our time with talk of this and talk of that and sport and music and holidays and away days and plans for this and plans for that. All the while, friends, the trumpets are blasting. God's judgment is here and coming. And it will soon be too late for anyone to hear us tell them that they must bow the knee to King Jesus, the Lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world, who has taken away the sin of the world. The final trumpet hasn't sounded yet. The day of Christ's return hasn't come yet. 2 Peter 3 tells us why. God is patient. He is patient. But that patience will have an end. And so today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. Don't scoff. Don't delay. Don't scroll through your phone for distractions. Repent now. Before it is too late. Woe. Woe. Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow.